Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Benny coming to you here on Juanced. I'm here with, of course, the ever-friendly and wonderful Dan Pfefferman. How you doing? Good. How you doing, sir? Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad to be here. I'm happy. How was your How was your week? It's been very busy. Things are happening. Things are happening indeed. Uh, for those of you who were not participating in last week's podcast, Dan got me into uh, CrossFit after years <laughs> of a war of attrition to wear me down to the point where I said, "You know what? Screw it. I'll I'll, I'll just go." And uh, you know, uh, like good CrossFitters, we can't go through uh, the first three minutes of a conversation without mentioning it. So at the beginning of the podcast, CrossFitters and vegans, I think that's how it works. We're not vegans. We will. Uh, well, maybe our guest is. We haven't asked her yet. I don't think so, though. No, I'm saying vegans like to always talk about themselves. Yes, yes they do. CrossFitters. So, uh, so it's been going well. Uh, finished the three uh, intro basics classes, and now we're getting into uh, the real deal. So, looking forward to that. Recommend everybody. So, shout out to Rose Valley CrossFit. And we'll, uh, we'll get them on our show. Also. Absolutely. So without further ado, uh, I will let Dan introduce our very esteemed guest. And uh, I think we're going to have a really, really good time this this show. Uh, we're going to delve into some topics that we have not yet touched upon That's right. in the show. Uh, and it should be it should be great for you. So uh, without further ado, Dan, uh, turn it over to you. I will. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, current events. We've done a lot of Israel. We've done a lot of Middle East. What we haven't done is taken a more global look at seeing some of the big trends that are I think affecting not just the year or the month, but but maybe the decade and looking decades ahead. And so what we wanted to do is uh, this episode talk about China, China's role in the world, China's role in the region. And for that, we have one of Israel's foremost experts. Uh, welcome, Karis Witte. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. I uh, can share with you that this is my inaugural po- podcast experience. Awesome. So I will uh, have the honor of introducing you today and your uh, impressive uh, background and why it is we decided to invite you. Uh, so Chris Witte is the founder and executive director of a nice organization called Signal, the Sino-Israel Global Network and Academic Leadership, which is an Israeli policy organization that specializes on China-Israel relations. And Chris has really been at the forefront of initiating uh, Chinese-Israeli uh, relations uh, back since uh, 2011, starting with Track 2 Exchanges. Um, she's also one of the people who founded and initiated Israel Studies programs at universities across China uh, and holds an annual program in Israel for Chinese faculty on teaching Israel Studies. Carice is a recognized expert on China and China-Israel relations. That's how I got to know her. I uh, had the pleasure of moderating a panel uh, at the Jewish People Policy Institute for which uh, she participated. Uh, she's a leading contributor. She's been defining the field of policy research on China and Israel. 
She's authored numerous articles, research policy, analysis papers on China-Israel relations, trade policy, strategic communications, and the relationship of all that to global Jewry. Uh, she made her way from the United States to Israel uh, back in 1987 until forming Signal. Uh, Carice pursued an entrepreneurial career in international real estate and Israeli high tech, working with leading Israeli banks, graduate of Yale, and she has five children and three grandchildren here in Israel. So Carice, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So tell me, how does a uh, nice American woman end up being Israel's one of Israel's leading experts on China and China-Israel relations? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I have to start by saying part of the reason I'm uh, one of the uh, leading experts is because there aren't too many people in Israel who know about China. I would say that it's not Israel's fault necessarily. There was a 60-year gap in relations between our countries. So if you think about it, we had an, uh, the modern state of Israel formed in 1948, China 1949, Israel was the first country in the Middle East to recognize China. Discussions were going on about within Israel about uh, establishing a relationship. Ben-Gurion was a real believer in China's future. He saw China as a future global power. And uh, he wanted to connect with China. But uh, given our relations with the United States, you know, history does repeat itself. There were hesitations. And then China... Uh, took part in the 1955 Bandung Conference and signed on with the Non-Aligned Movement, which was totally anti-Israel. All the Muslim states were part of that. And there was basically a boycott against the existence of Israel. So uh, Mao Zedong joined that party and had nothing to do with Israel. And that really continued until Saul Eisenberg was doing arms deals and he managed to be either you could say some say he was at the right place at the right time some say he was tapped for the position but he managed to facilitate Israeli arms sales and and defense equipment to China so that was like the opening of relations but it was totally under the table and unofficial so that that situation continued right so when I made Aliyah after having studied Chinese studies at Yale and spent some time in Taiwan studying Chinese and doing some research. And then after I graduated, I went to China and I worked there and I uh, conducted more research and I lived there on and off between 1984 and 1985. So the China that I know, one of the things I love to say to the Chinese students who I meet at our universities in China is I was in China before you were born. <laughs> right. And well, you were in China was what we know today as as the China of today, 1984, 1985, 86 sure. in China. No, no, this was, the, this was the People's Republic of China, 1984. But when I made Aliyah in 1987, there were still no official relations between Israel and China. So nobody was interested in China. China was an irrelevant topic. I tried. And no, there was no um, venue, no opening, no opportunity. And China was relevant on the world stage at the time also, no? No, no, not really. But nonetheless, you know, I studied it. I spoke the language. I was there. I knew how fascinating it was. And I came from documentary film. film. That was the area that I was working in. And that was what I was doing in China, which, by the way, was an interesting in and of itself, because at that time you had to get a, a visa or a permit to, you know, go to the 
bathroom, so to speak. You know, I had I got my visa to go to Beijing, but then I um, needed a visa to go fly out to Kunming, which is in the west. And then when I was in Kunming, I had to get a permit to leave the city and go to the villages in the area. So there was, you know, just very, very careful tracking. But it was all done by paper back then. So you're, you're already becoming a China expert. You're living there. You're speaking the language. And then you decide to make Aliyah. So right. what, when you get to Israel in the 1980s, there's still not relations. Um, and, and where is China kind of on a global stage, right? Is it starting already to transition out of its communist economy? Um, is Israel looking at China at this time? How, how does Israel how does was, I, I don't think it was on Israel's radar in any way whatsoever. China was a backwater. Both our countries were not doing that well in the mid 80s. When I made Aliyah, Israel looked very different as well. And there was no logical reason for the two countries, you know, to, there was no real business to be done. Neither one had the capacity at the time. And China was still a reverberating from the Cultural Revolution, which ended in 1976. It was such a an, um, psychological, emotional trauma that really horrified the people. I mean, children were turned against their parents. Everybody who was educated was brought, uh, was sent out to the fields. Many of the people, the older um, scholars that I work with now, the experts, they all were sent out into the fields to do hard labor in their you know, whatever it was, their, their teens, their 20s, their 30s, the peasants were brought in to lead the country. China suffered um, starvation, the, many people died in the Great Leap Forward. So China was traumatized. In the mid 80s, it was still coming out of that trauma. Deng Xiaoping saved the country by deciding to do reform and opening up and open to the world. Sorry to interject. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar so much with Chinese history, what we're talking about is Mao Zedong's revolutionary ideas to, let's say, get rid of Chinese China's former elite class, international class, and to replace it more with uh, the proletariat, with the with the workers to kind of change roles or, or, or switch uh, access in terms of... Uh, to implement uh, communism, right? To implement the well, Chinese it, version of... It, it was more about um, maintaining the, rev- the revolutionary spirit. And um, that's why children were told, you know, if your parents... Uh, have a violin in the house, report them. If they have a book, um, you know, by a foreign author, report them. And the kids did. And so it, it was it was a devastating period for China. And now China's gone through another different kind of devastation, which is a positive one, but still earth-wrenching, which is Deng launched this very powerful economic transformation to industrialize China, and the Chinese people are super hardworking people. So, you know, they dove right in. They're used to suffering. The Chinese culture has had 5,000 years of, you know, invasion and takeover and uh, rebellion and the emperor falls and a new emperor comes and and the people are constantly, you know, being knocked around in between. But they have always been hard workers and um, open-minded to whatever is going to work. And so they uh, took to this opportunity like that. They're very entrepreneurial. And they're willing to really work very hard, for lack of another way of saying it, in order to advance their own lives and the lives of their children. And what we saw is 30 years of intensive, powerful growth where when I was there, there was no food. 
the food was in the mid 80s when I was in China, you could get, you know, I went from Hong Kong to Changsha, like on my way going north into China. So in Hong Kong, anything you want, it was, you know, it was like a Singapore. It, it was magical. It was the tall buildings, you know, tons of food. It, you know, it was a um, New York City or whatever. It was a beautiful place as far as being very advanced. And then you arrive in China, the trains are very, very old. Buses are very, very old and few and far between. Almost no cars whatsoever, all bicycles. And you could get root vegetables and some eggs and some tofu. There really wasn't food. And the Chinese have basically been hungry until maybe 30 years ago. And uh, which can link, bring us right back up to the present because uh, about Two and a half, three weeks ago, Xi Jinping made the announcement, no more food waste, because which I'm sure sends, you know, shockwaves through some of the older people, because in the last two years, China suffered, I'm sorry to jump from 1984 to 2019, but just on this theme, China suffered a swine flu, and which is a very interesting story, because what I heard is that swine flu broke out and um, pig brokers came to where those pigs were having to be slaughtered and they bought them at like 10 fun on the UN, you know, 10 cents on the dollar and bought the live pigs and then resold them around the country. So swine flu killed half of all of the pig population in China, if not more, and sent uh, the price of pork up by 86 cents, uh, sorry, 86% and the price of other meats shot up. And then China was hit by army worms. And the army worm, earlier this year, an army worm is a little, um, you know, worm that eats up your crop. But they proliferate massively. And they swarmed China over the uh, first few months of the year and destroyed tens of thousands of dunam of crops. And then, more recently, in the midst of COVID-19, which also damaged agriculture, floods, which then damaged another tens of thousands of dunam of crops. And so Xi Jinping said, uh, no more food waste. And what does that practically mean for Chinese people when he says no food waste? That's a good question. Xi Jinping, the way a lot of policy comes through the statements of the leader, certainly with President Xi. So President Xi says, uh, no more waste. And then everybody figures out what does that mean? So they fall over themselves to meet the implications that they believe uh, are there. And so what it meant for some cities is that they were going to offer N minus one or N minus two meals. However many people you are in your group going to a restaurant, you can have the number of dishes of number of people you are minus one. So we're a group of 10 people, we can order nine dishes. Another province was going to be even more committed to the policy, they did N minus two. A Beijing restaurant was going to be even more committed. They weighed people when they walked in and then weighed them when they walked out and chastised them if they went wow. out too much. <laughs> that ended very quickly. Only in so, so when we're looking at you know the what's happening here in Israel or, or in the U.S. about people not wanting to wear masks, you know, for example, uh, because of the COVID, uh, you're, you're saying that kind of mentality of 
doing, you know, the opposite of what the government says doesn't exist in China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't exist in a, in a lot of Asian countries, though. You won't see that happen in, for example, Taiwan. Taiwan is a democratic state with, you know, a lot of freedoms. But if you try to, I mean, they wouldn't try. But when you land at the airport, they know, they take you right into quarantine and they watch you and then they put an app on you and so yesh yesh in democracies. And it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. So the 80s, uh, life was very difficult. But over the next 30 years, it was really a miracle development with China succeeding to manufacture everything for everyone and make it literally everything for everyone. Yeah, it's... literally. And be, being extremely efficient, low wages, and and if I may, I will I will take us through the theme of low wages up to 2010 because the miracle was happening. China was transforming as far as uh, you know, buildings are getting built and and people are making money. Cities pop out of nowhere, right? Uh, I mean, this kind of narrative that we heard in the West. Absolutely, and up to the point where ghost cities were built, you know, lots of construction with no people to fill them because there were no jobs. Uh, endless difficulties and challenges, but at the same time, lifting 800, 800 million people it's an insane. out of poverty. 800 million. I mean, it's so it's such a huge number, you know, you have to check yourself in this country of 9 million people, which is a, a, a smaller size city in China. Smaller size city. A village. <laughs> Not a village. No, when I was in China a couple of years ago, I was shocked by, I mean, you come back from that experience and you start trying to learn a little bit more about the place you had just visited because it's such a shocking you know, experience from, from, you know, when you come up from being raised in the United States with whatever, you know, preconceived notion you might have about China and then confronting the, the real China in the flesh. Um, you know, you, you realize that there are cities in China that you've never heard of, that you can't pronounce, that you'll never hear about in the news that have 12 million people. That's like Chicago, but you've never heard. Like, imagine if you were to live your whole life and you never heard of Chicago. And then, like, you discover that there's this place that has, you know, millions and millions of people that has major impact. And that's China. You have, you know, we all know about, the, you know, the main cities, you know, Beijing, Hong Kong, Shanghai, you know, Chengdu, uh, Guangzhou. But you, you don't hear about, you know, Nanjing. Or you we didn't mention Shenzhen, which is the manufacturing right. part of China. Most of people haven't heard of Shenzhen. And, and even to go back to what you said about the food, you know, the food issue, you know, to to the amount of food that you see in China, the the, the variety, the variety. It's a you know to use a, a you know laugh at me for using this word, but like the cornucopia of choice that you have if i thought you, you go were going to go with smorgasbord and then i was going to laugh at you right the, to see the choices that you have if you go to an average night market in china of just whatever you want and whatever you know variety be it things that uh you know you don't uh you don't want to eat to things that are amazing and, and i'll eat everything but it's um to hear that they're going to be scaling back on that sort of a thing is like i don't understand how you're going to how you're going to do that um, but they'll do it so um, it's very interesting, your comment about that, because when I came to China in 2010, it, summer 2010 was my first time back from 1985. Wow. Um, just to get you from there to there, it's because of my, my deep, 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 deep love of Israel. I had one of those Hollywood epiphanies. I, I mean, Israel was not, we weren't raised religious. We were not Zionist. I really barely ever heard the word Israel. We visited here when I was 11. It was just another country. I didn't like it. 
it was 1971 and it was <laughs> and uh, you know I was a kid and everything was just like so small and cramped and dark and I, I mean the beautiful flowers but uh, you know along the people's houses but other than that I don't remember anything nice and um, came here on a visit because family a family event that was taking place and I walk off the plane it's before they had the 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 end hooked up to your thing. Yeah. Walk out onto the stairs. Son, Nachman Breslev was dancing on the tarmac. And <laughs> I had this incredibly bizarre. He's still there. <laughs> it was like this wave. Oh my God, I found this is my home. And I, I never intended to stay in the US. Um, I actually thought I was going to live many years in China. I'm from Westchester, New York. And sure. Westport, Connecticut area, sort of that whole Northeast um, bit. And, but as much as I loved, you know, it was great. And, and I loved working in New York and it was a really cool place, but I didn't feel grounded and I didn't feel rooted and I didn't feel connected. So I was working in documentary film, traveling the world and kind of looking for what would work and accidentally just happened to come to this country and realize this is it. And after that, it was like, I look at Israel like my sixth kid uh, I, I feel, you know, very protective of it. And and we all know it's a very difficult place to live day by day. And, uh, you know, America's on a, well, maybe up until recently, generally a pleasant, easier day-to-day -day life. But on, on a level of meaning and depth, and for me, you know, there's no place like home, and it's Israel. And uh, so I came here, as I said, in 1987, and then, and that was it. And I, there was no more China. Um, and in fact, uh, a bit ironically, my husband started doing business in um, importing from Hong Kong and, he, and Taiwan. He was getting uh, components. So he was going to Hong Kong and getting these things together. And he ended up making some trips to China. And, he, you know, he, he didn't invite me to come, but I really didn't want to go anyway. I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a reason. And then in 2009, I started researching for um, a program that I, I wanted to, after Janine in 2002, where we had uh, the second intifada. What, I don't know, what year did you guys make Aliyah? 2004 for me. And I think you were... Well, I was 2005, but I'd been here. I lived here prior to that. And I was here also in 2000, 2002, 2003. So, you know, the second intifada was just devastating. And for me, the operation in Janine, where we lost a lot of our soldiers trying to minimize collateral damage in the world, still castigated us, was mm. uh, a seminal moment for me that, you know, when I could afford it and my kids were big enough, I wanted to try to do something that would help neutralize the delegitimization of Israel in a meaningful way. So that time came in 2009 and I started researching and I started looking at China. And it was post-2008 uh, uh, subprime debacle. And I, I did see that there was a little bit of China looking at Israel, note, and Israel looking at China. Oh, you didn't you know, crash in this horrible disaster. And, but that was it. And then I started to dig and um, look at what was really happening between Israel and China in 2009. And so, so what was happening uh, back in 2009? What was the state of relations? Nothing. <laughs> it was it was it was so empty that I thought I had lost all my research skills. I figured <laughs> I must be doing something wrong. 
And when, so, when did China? Sorry, sorry to interrupt here. When did China and Israel uh, officially uh, form diplomatic relations? Nineteen ninety-two. Ninety-two. Okay. And our relations expanded from secret military sales to non-secret military sales, and also we added the uh, intelligence sharing. And also, I there was always some interest in sales of water technology. Drip technology did go to China back then, a little bit of agriculture, but that was it. So there never were real relations between our countries. You know, um, I've actually never read any study of why our relations were so limited. You know, I've written a couple of papers that they were and and sort of looking at the situation, but and and others have as well. But I haven't seen anything and, and there may be something out there, but I would chalk it up to a few things. I think. First of all, there's a deep cultural gap. The Chinese did not see, think about it. What were we actually doing? We were only doing what the Chinese wanted. They wanted arms. We said, okay, we'll take your money. They wanted intelligence. The Americans probably said, you know, that's a good thing too. And of course, the reason the Americans were very pro was because they wanted to pull China away from the USSR orbit during those years. So they encouraged Israel to participate in whatever China was interested in. But Israel had no real interests of its own. Up until this day, there has been very little thought by our leadership put into what do we want from China. Now, of course, in recent days or recent years, I should say, the idea of money, you know, has has been, which maybe that isn't really different from what it was back then, which was, well, we'll um, get paid for selling you arms. So if you think about, number one, Israel doesn't know what it wants. It's a foreign country. What is Israel interested in, right? It's thinking always about the Palestinian conflict, regional uh, 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 security in a very difficult region, relations with the America, and managing our internal balagan, right? So that's where Israel's focus is. Of course, you have the adventurous post-army guys going to China and India and everywhere, Southeast Asia. So they go. But the, the real leaders in the relationship who can create the official frameworks that are necessary, like flights, visa, all these things that uh, facilitate uh, exchange money, you know, seed money for scientific cooperation or whatever. The focus was 100 percent America or that's not true. 90 percent America, 10 percent Europe. Did we think about Latin America? Did we think about Central Asia? Did we think about um, Southeast Asia? The, you know, no, nothing. Nothing was on Israel's radar. And I can tell you that for sure, because when I went, uh, started to talk to uh, former government officials and heads of think tanks and university heads here in Israel about my idea of forming this organization that would strengthen China-Israel relations, they either looked at me cross-eyed or they said, you mean China, Israel, U.S.? So there was no concept in, in there, there was no consciousness. The mental framework was all about what was. So um, I think that it, that's it's really where our heads were. And Do you think there was also um, a sh- an American shadow um, as, of course, China came out of came out of its, you know, I don't want to say alliance, but came out of its relationship with the Soviet Union as that broke out. And then China uh, clearly became this manufacturing uh, and economic powerhouse, a growing one throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. Um, but the U.S., and, and I'd like to get into this uh, a little bit later, 
the U.S. has always viewed China suspiciously. It's always viewed China as a future uh, threat arrival, and now it certainly views China as a threat arrival. Was there ever kind of this American glass ceiling on what Israel could and couldn't do in its relationship with China? Hmm. That, you phrased that very interestingly, um, because we've looked a lot at America's perspective on the relationship and America's interests, but not necessarily from the from the view of a glass ceiling. That's an interesting idea. Um, I'll tell you that first of all, in the beginning, well, always. Israel has been guided by U.S. interests with respect to China because of the nature of the relationship, uh, starting back in, you know, when Ben-Gurion wanted to establish official relations in the early days. So uh, when the U.S., uh, when the wall came, Berlin Wall came down and the USSR broke up, suddenly you saw the U.S. canceling the Falcon deal which right. was the AWACS airborne uh, um, right, the intelligence form, right? military jet, fighter jet canceled, which caused tremendous suffering within the Israeli government. The U.S. was extremely upset and angry. So it would have been early 90s, right? Not, 2000. This was 2000. 2000. The, so, the, so for, people that don't, for, the, for people that don't know, Israel was trying to sell. It sold. Israel, Israel sold. There's a dispute whether or not Israel had a green light to do the sale in the first place. My feeling, sense of it is that they got the green light back in the early 90s when that it was useful to the Americans. And then over time, the deal, the deal developed and the Chinese paid a $300 million down payment and they were, uh, it was moving forward. Um, I think it, the deal happened in 96 and uh, it was moving forward and um, this, I don't know exactly what caused the U.S. to become aware of it, but it was an, it was an Israeli product, but it had been done jointly with the Americans. Okay, so we're talking about a, a, an Israeli sale of high-impact military technology that had, let's say, American proprietary components. Right, and America limits uh, whatever has uh, components in it. Limits right, and they didn't want it going to the Chinese at the right. time. Right pressured Israel to, did we ultimately get out of the... We can't, we, we, yes, we canceled the deal. We paid the money. We paid reparations. The Chinese were very unhappy. The Americans were very even unhappier. Washington was very upset with Israel. Some, uh, some is high level Israeli bureaucrats were sanctioned for it under American insistence. So it, it was a very... Uh, unpleasant experience for everyone. How long would it take before relations got back on track? This was between mid- us, and, by us the and the way. Chinese. I just Googled it. Yeah, but it was canceled in 2000. And then in 2004, it, so that damaged relations with China. And then in 2004, they sent their Harpy drone that they purchased from Israel back to, for repairs. And America said, don't send it back. We don't want them to have it. Oh, no. And <laughs> it's not, not very good customer service. No, that's bad customer service. So right. Israel and complied. And that effectively froze relations between China and Israel. China saw Israel as the 51st American state. It had no mind of its own. It understands that we have, you know, we're just beholden to an extent to America, but for them that was too far. And there was nothing official, but you saw no diplomats coming. There was nothing happening. There's still an embassy and everything existed, but it was like in a deep freeze. 
So when I was researching in 2009, uh, I, I found that there were five Chinese students in Israel, five. Whatever Israeli students happened to be studying in China, it was, you know, through their own initiative and nothing to do with anything official. Israelis are adventurous. So no student exchange, no joint academic programs, no scientific cooperation. You know, there's like interlibrary things done between countries, nothing like that. No chambers active. Well, there was a chamber of commerce in um, an Israeli chamber of commerce in Beijing, but not I would imagine there wasn't that much they were able to do. There was no scholarly discussions, no think tank exchanges, no tourism. Were there, were there any serious Israeli academics or think tanks looking at China at the time? Nope. No. And were there any... You know, Chinese counterparts looking at Israel at the time? Nope, not officially. Not so what happens? What because we're 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 in a vastly different scenario today, obviously. What happens? What's the spark that brings things, you know, that that the bud turns into a flower? When does it start to to pick up? So I wanna say that in two thousand seven, the Chinese invited the director of the Malal, whose name I don't remember right now. You can look it up on Google. Uh, whoever was the national security advisor at the time, they were invited to China. And, and he went with four of his team. And they had an amazing experience. Very interesting. Do you have his name? It would be either Ilan Mizrahi or Dani Arditi. It was Ilan Mizrahi. And they had the Chinese welcomed them very warmly. Now, this is just three years after, right, after the, the crisis. Clearly, the Chinese were looking for a way to reconnect, and they thought that embracing the national security advisor would work. That's a good they, way to start, Israel. Yeah. One would think. They came home, the Israelis. Nobody was interested. Nobody picked up on it, did anything about it. So everything stayed dormant. Does China have good relations at this time with, uh, with Arab nations? All, all the way through. All the way through. China, all the way through. China has had, uh, China politically aligns with the Palestinians. Uh, one of the reasons is because they believe that that is what the Arab League wants. And um, it's very important to China to maintain good relations with the 56 Muslim states who vote with China in the UN, especially on Taiwan, which is a very sensitive topic. Is that indicative of ch- also of Chinese attitudes towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or are we perhaps not even on the map, culturally speaking? I'm sorry, I missed the first couple words. What about is that? Is that indicative of Chinese cultural attitudes towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or do we not register on the map? The opposite. The uh, the Chinese. So it depends on what era you're talking about. But up until up until 2010, even a little bit later, maybe 2012. The media in China was very anti-Israel. You only saw war and devastation and suffering Palestinians. The other, that's what the masses, that's how the mass population received their information about Israel. There were a few anti-Semitic books written by Japanese mainly, uh, which were translated to Chinese. Not anti-Semitic in in its most egregious sense, but just, you know, sort of very stereotyped anti anti. Um, what we would consider to be anti-Semitic. And then you had ambassadors to 56, or however many there were, 50 Muslim states who would return home and bring the views of Israel that they learned while they were there. So you can imagine the general view of the, and, and I've had many Chinese say this to me, you know, I've made scores of trips. I've led a thousand delegations, or I'm sorry, I've held a thousand meetings, briefings, 
in China in the last 10 years, at least. And I meet with and deal with Chinese professors and faculty and deans and presidents and also the government and the party. So we, we deal a lot with different uh, members of the party, le different levels of uh, the party. And so I've had an opportunity to hear their views. And generally, they were told that we were bad people for many, many years. And, you know, you believe what you're told. What, you're young, you grow up, you hear, you believe it. Everybody believes it. It's, a, it's the common knowledge. Especially in a one-party state with, with state media. Right. Where, where else are you going to get information from? Right. Although... I don't know. You can look at Europe. They have lots of different media, but <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah, right. sometimes <laughs> uh, that doesn't make sense. I, but they came to know us. They came to um, interact with us, the Jews and the Israelis, and they learned that we're trustworthy, that we're honest, that we are hard, you know, hardworking, that we're we're committed, that we're good. We can be good friends. You know, we can be perform as a good friend, as a reliable partner. And um, they many of them said to me, you know, I f we feel uh, cheated that we were told the Arabs are our brothers. Yes, the Jews are our friends, but the Arabs are our brothers. And, and it's not that the, the Arabs shouldn't be their brothers, but they should have uh, the opportunity to know that the Jews are quality people who can contribute a lot to China. And I think that's a lot of the, their perspective, you know, what is, are, are these people good for China? You know, we always say, is it good for the Jews? So they have a similar perspective. So uh, in the, at this time, the, 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 what happened was in 2007, they made that effort. It didn't work. I started looking into establishing this organization and I was in China in the summer of 2010, which is really amazing because that summer, two seminal announcements were made in China. One, China is the second largest economy of the world. Right, surpassed Japan. Right. We have to remember that China suffered 100 years of humiliation from the 1850s, opium war, all of the invasions and taking over their customs houses, etc. Up until they became the second largest economy, that their self-esteem was greatly diminished. Now, of course, it was improving as they were making money and they were becoming successful and building beautiful buildings. And the 2008 Olympics was a, a major coming out party for China. And actually, the, that, that had something to do with the beginning of a recognition of each other because Israelis were brought over to Beijing to consult and contribute to the security for the um, Beijing Olympics. So in 2010, again, but you know, not that much happened in between. Uh, my my assessment was the second big thing that happened was we mentioned the terrible working conditions. So going back to that, workers were jumping off the building of Foxconn, the big, huge manufacturing uh, behemoth that does um, Nike and Apple. They, they manufacture for it's a Taiwanese company, but they have a, up until recently, they've had many of their manufacturing centers in China. And the working conditions were so horrible that people would kill themselves. But instead of doing what the leadership could have done and has done in the past, which is sweep it under the rug, they said this is unacceptable and we must raise the level of working standards for the people and raise the level of uh, lifestyle for the people. And so uh, China will become the world's innovators, no longer just the, the factory of the world. And this is like a 
a mental switch that the leadership and the country is is making at this point from being kind of the cheap factory, cheap labor for the global economy, and now they're going to innovate and lead you know, take, promote themselves to to a much more uh, innovative uh, role, right, in the global economy. The leaders to be the the world's innovators at meaning planting that mm-hmm. um, that entire everything that means in China. And we see the fruit of that now. What have to do with then their desire to connect to Israel in any way? Does it have to do with kind of Israeli innovation being, at, you know, uh, we like to say it's a marvel of the world. It is so is now China switching from a manufacturing to to the the biggest R and D uh, you know figure in the world, and is now looking at Israel as their kind of uh, an impetus to connect to Israel for that or reason? A model of you know, how, how to make it happen. So my my assessment in 2010 was just that. They, they won't get, my thinking was, they're not going to get everything they want from the U.S. to be innovators. They're going to eventually come to Israel. And because they're the second largest economy, they will be more free to come to Israel because my knowledge at the time and my studies told me that China was very much led by the non-aligned states in its approach to Israel. And even though we have official relations, there's not any encouragement or there's even discouragement to interact with Israel. However, if it's in China's significant interest to come to Israel because they want to be innovators, then they will have the self-presence to say to whoever criticizes them, thank you very much, but we want to go to Israel. And it might be hard to believe, but that's really the, men- that the thought process that would happen because there was a lot of pressure. I, I can tell you a very quick story. We published, um, we arranged for the publication of a book by Ambassador Dory Gold, which was in China. Um, he did a book, uh, Fight for Jerusalem. And we arranged to have that book translated and published by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs publisher in China which was, you know, obviously a very esteemed publisher. And it, it ended up, uh, as a result, it would end up on the desk of um, many decision makers in China. And a, a year later, after that happened, there was the Asian Confidence Building Conference, everyone from Asia coming there. So all the Asian continent. And uh, the Palestinian ambassador, very distraught, approached the uh, foreign minister of China, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and said, you know, waving this book, why is this here? Why was this published? This is unacceptable. The end of the story is that Wang Yi turned to the publisher. The publisher asked us, what do I say? We said, it's fine. There's nothing, you know, the book is, uh, it's very balanced. You have a Chinese uh, Muslim wrote the uh, introduction. And, and this happens in, in our region. This, this kind of thing happens. And nothing came of it. But when there was the second Asian confidence building conference. And the same thing happened. This time Wang Yi said to the publisher, I've had enough. When it when it runs out, don't publish it again. And and so now you can't get the book. It was susceptible to uh, Palestinian pressure on kind of this, what seemed to be a warming of uh, relations with Israel or, or kind of a, a shifting worldview in Israel. It, it's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the hassle. It's not, it's not a, it's not a statement of a political perspective. It's not worth the hassle. If that book meant that relations between U.S. and China would be better, then they would republish the book. But 
they, they had nothing to gain by having the book published and they did have what to lose because there was this sort of little noise in the background all the time. Signal participated in a, an international conference in 2013 in China, hosted by a, the think tank of the International Department of the Central Committee. And we brought, we had a delegation of five and uh, we had David Harvitz with us and we had uh, ambassador, the head of Times of Israel and we had um, Ambassador Oded Iran and, and a couple of others. And uh, uh, David Harvitz's talk discussed many, some of the challenges of our region, of our immediate region, quite straightforwardly. And uh, after the session, the Egyptian delegation approached the Chinese, castigated them for allowing us to be there and said, you know, we shouldn't be allowed to be there. And so the Chinese said, next time, can you please come only with a delegation of two? Because they were only three and we were five. <laughs> the Egyptians were three, we were five. So the Chinese, it's, it's very much about, how do I put it? If it's in their interest to deal with the trouble, they will. And if it's not, they won't. And they make that calculation uh, it's a very utilitarian approach. Absolutely. To foreign affairs. Yes. So let me let me take a step out here. So we're now in into the 2010s. Um, China has the Olympics. You know, um, their economy has grown and grown and grown. They're making that shift into innovation. Um, how does China today, uh, and, and maybe over the past decade, how does China view the region, its role in the region, and kind of where Israel fits into that? Right. Or I would add to that, how how does China's growth and uh, development into an almost near superpower status uh, affect what you were just talking about? Were they able, are they able now to to look at the Egyptians and say, you know what, we're China, we're going to do what we want to do? Not, It's not that simple. Not at all. That's not how they do things, mainly because that's not how they do things. Um, I, with your permission, I'm, I just want to step back and say that you asked before, I didn't directly answer your question yet. Sorry about that. You asked me how, how the relationship blossomed. So before we get to the superpower part, uh, let's talk about relations between China and Israel and how they went from zero to 100. So I um, identified two big, not to say that I'm, you know, but I just want to, everything's sort of connected and, and I want to connect it sort of through my experience because that's the one I, I know the best. So um, I identified two big holes in the relationship that I, I thought I could fill. One was that there had never... But this is around 2010 or 11? When is this? 2010. Summer of 2010. Okay. Well, actually, the beginning of 2010, I uh, identified these two holes. One was um, that there had never been an Israel Studies course, class, taught at a Chinese university in the history of China. You know, wow. for 5,000 years, they never studied about Israel. So I wanted to see if I could repair that and or redress the the, the mishap. So that was one. And the other you, Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Had you founded Signal by that point? I was in the beginning of, of that was, um, I was intent, I was founding Signal. It took You're a long time. It yeah. took a year, uh, more than a year, um, because I had no money. I was doing everything out of pocket. Um, I w didn't come from the fundraising, like Jewish world space. So um, everything had its, took its time. But I don't know anything about that space. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to uh, China on my own ticket. And I was actually, my son had been studying Kung Fu uh, or Gong Fu as, at the Shaolin 
Kung Fu Temple School in a little pit of a town called Dunfang outside, really of, outside of Zhengzhou. Zhengzhou had the largest university. We work now with the vice president of Zhengzhou, 66,000 students. Wow. The number, the, the scale there is just amazing. Unbelievable. I have to ask, do you know um, Guy, uh, he's an American now, but American who made Aliyah for a while, uh, Peter Riesman? Yeah, sure. So Peter is an old friend of mine. Um, ah. Great guy. He's an old friend of mine. And he actually also, he spent seven years in China. And for a few of those years, he was also living in a village studying Gong Fu and uh, became a uh, champion of, uh, of, of uh, I think, the collegiate Gong Fu League in China while he was there. He must be a pretty tough uh, guy. That's an aspect of him I didn't know. It's no wonder he is where he is today because that it teaches you tremendous willpower and strength and like internal Absolutely. power. Sorry, but back to what we were uh, explaining. Right. So, of the-, uh, the other area, my so that was one angle, and the other stemmed from my concern that if China is going to be coming to Israel for innovation, it's going to start setting policies to do with the region, Israel and the region. It already was, you know, a major oil buyer from from the region. And I knew that China did not really understand this region or us, because if you think about it, they're not a Judeo-Christian society. Right, right. And being and there's never been a serious Jewish presence in the Far East uh, for them to have. There to was, know. it depends on your definition of serious. I mean, we there were Jews there for a thousand years in Kaifang, but China, that, that didn't, no culture influenced could influence China. I mean, even the Mongols, you know, and the Huns, they they ended up just disappearing Becoming into Chinese. Chinese. Oh, right. yeah. sure. right. So in order to contribute to their understanding, I wanted to establish relations with the policy advisors, not the leaders, because in Chinese culture and the way the system is, uh, the leaders are not really open to outside input. But their scholar advisors, and if you go and you look at the history, you've probably heard of the imperial exam system. So it was started in the Sui dynasty when the emperor wanted to unify the warring states. And he said, if I'm going to run a reasonable country here or a reasonable nation, I need educated bureaucrats. So he started this scholar bureaucrat process. And if you were at the village level, it was an easier test. and It would get more and more difficult as you got to the forbidden city. And by the way, two Jews did make it. Uh, to be advisors in the Forbidden City. That tradition really uh, penetrated the DNA of the Chinese. And being an educated person, a scholar, put you in a position for leadership of some kind until the Cultural Revolution, everything flipped on its head, but then Deng came in and he flipped it back again. So I knew that if we could cultivate relations with the scholar advisors, that we could bring them our understandings of Israel and the region, they would filter it through their own perspective and, and, and you know, viewpoints, and then they would pass it up the food chain in a way that spoke to their leaders. They, they know through their cultural lens, how to exactly, they know how to communicate, obviously. So we wanted to develop, identify who are these people, develop relations with them, and then, you know, be able to come to Beijing bring experts and and share ideas. And that's what that's what I did. It took it took some time. Um, spent the better part of 2011 uh, from late 2010 to mid 2011 mapping out who are these 
who these people might be, hmm. looking at where do they give uh, lectures, what kind of conferences internationally do they attend, papers they write, etc., and um, came up with some people. We invited them to Israel. And to be perfectly honest, in late 2010, when I was planning to do this, I wasn't sure that the kind of influential people I wanted to bring to Israel would be allowed to come and talk about strategy and security. It was going to be a strategy and security symposium, closed event. Mm -hmm. So I was I was planning to do it at my alma mater at Yale because I figured they could say, oh, I'm going to Yale University. They love Yale University. And then, by the way, there's going to be some Israelis there. But fortuitously, I was building a board of directors and my new one of my new board members said that I should have a meeting with Yuli Edelstein, who was just coming back from China. Why? This was January 5th, 2011. China had invited the foreign minister of the Likud party, which was the ruling party at the time, to China to meet with the foreign minister of the Communist Party. Well, there isn't a foreign minister of the Likud party. So they <laughs> sent Yuli and he came, uh, you know, he, he went, he saw, he returned. And we had this conversation and I started explaining to him, you know, the government is basically under the, the party. And he said, oh, that's why that was happening. And those people were doing those things, etc." So, but what it said to me was, there had been a sea change in China, and if they're inviting the, the Likud to come, and they said to him, we want the Likud think tank to have a think tank to think tank uh, event with the Communist Party think tank, but there's no Likud think tank. <laughs> and um, so given, given that information, I said, okay, we can do this in Israel. So I turned to the IDC and held the first ever symposium on strategy, strategy and security between international relations experts from China and Israel. And in Israel, we had, you know, people like Moshe Ahrens and, and um, oh my goodness, so many uh, luminaries that are just escaping me at the moment. Our, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking out on every name right now. Um, we had a lot of fantastic participation by Israel, and if I if I start to say positions because I can't remember the name, it'll be too embarrassing. So we'll we'll just let that go. Suffice it to say, it was a um, very powerful event. We um, I, Nobel laureate Alman presented, and uh, that led to we then went to China, and they started opening doors. And one of the places that they they took us was the Central Party School. And the Central Party School, in case you don't, people, you know, people don't know, that is where all of the leaders of China get their enrichment training or the part, you know, learning the more recent party thinking. And so that includes provincial leaders, uh, party secretaries from around the country, uh, heads of state-owned enterprises, etc., ambassadors, so uh, we met with the International Institute of Strategic Studies there, which is the think the brain of, of the place. And by the way, the president of the Central Party School always becomes the next, it is the appoint, expected next president of the country. So Xi Jinping was the president at the time, although oh, wow. I wasn't aware of that when I went there. When we return... What do you think tank in the Chinese sense? It's, it's really acting as a very... Um, 
softly hidden kind of uh, outreach arm for for the government, for the state uh, to be able to hold discussions and, you know, officially, you know, have a little bit of deniability, but you know exactly who you're talking to. Um, so, you know, you're not going to say it, but I'm going to say it. We can credit you with really opening up relations between China and Israel. Yeah, I think that inadvertently, that's that is what we ended up doing. We didn't realize that we were facilitating the Chinese. Uh, I only found out a year and a half later. I thought that our 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 friend, our host from who had been to our symposium, had opened that door. But I found out a year and a half later that they had told him bring her here. They were looking to find new ways exactly to strengthen the relationship, and then. It seemed they were right, because when I came back and reported to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here, they said, would you please introduce us, which led to when Prime Minister Netanyahu in 2013 made an official visit to China, he ended up or decided to make his official speech at the Central Party School. And Mm -hmm. that was definitely, you know, we were the connector in there. But in between that, in 2012, we brought the Central Party School to Israel. That was really very, very significant. And that's something that we did, again, and had inadvertently huge results or impact on the growing relationship. Because what happened was, you know, I'm a great believer in seeing and interacting and networking. Signal, you know, it's in our name and one of the few things I'm very good at. And the networking part was meant that you really needed to be in the place. And I wanted the Central Party School, this very significant entity, to come to Israel and experience it. And and because they have a very, you know, they're one degree of separation to the right. So it was really great. My counterpart, I said to him at, at the dinner they hosted for us, and by the way, we were the first Israelis to walk on that campus in 10 years since the Falcon. And they rolled out the red carpet. They, we, it was the only time they hosted us. We've been there since then 25 times. But uh, we were always going to the side building to a, a sort of a, a, a little meeting room as opposed to this incredible hall in the main building, which is where we were welcomed the first time with about 20 Chinese. And we were three people. The person who came with me, you know Dry Bones? Yeah, the comic. Dry Bones, the, the comic, the political comics. So Yaakov Kirshen was working with me. He's on our executive board today, and he was working with me to help me plan the strategy back then. He had been a fellow at Yale University at the Anti-Semitism Institute that was there for a few years, and they brought him in as a fellow. And so we met through that, and he, he was the person, me and, and Yaakov and um, an assistant were the, in front of these 20 uh, leaders. We brought them to Israel. We took them on a very well-planned road trip. And by coincidence, they happened to meet two major technology developers who were Americans who made Aliyah. One of them had come up with an incredibly important technology for fracking for one of the major oil companies in the U.S. He took, he had the patent, he brought it here. And, you know, there's a lot of Americans dealing in the system just and everyone speaks English and they came away with some assessments and we happened to overhear their conversation and two of the assessments were really um, critical to what happened next in Israel and you talk about how blossoming I'm sure people have lots of other stories about why the relationship blossomed but I, I think the Central Party School was key because they had the power to make the um, to write the report that would have the influence. And those two points were, number one, 
Think, remember, this is 2012. If we want a better relationship with the United States, we have to improve our relations with Israel. Now, of course, that's something a lot of countries think and yeah, exactly. obvious to people, but for the Chinese, a realization. The second thing was all that technology we're trying to get from America and we can't get it, we don't have to bother. Anyway, it's made by Jews and brought to Israel. So we can just get it in Israel. And lo and behold, a year later, you see a change in the uh, Chinese laws for private equity and venture capital and uh, private investment. And money starts flooding into Israel and technology starts to get purchased and investments start to get made. And I personally, and I could be wrong, but I chalk it up to the reports that, and they write reports, they're very serious report writers, all of the, all these um uh, people in the think, party think tanks, party uh, mechanisms, arms, etc. They they're very serious about their work, and unlike other countries, the <laughs> other other diplomats and bureaucrats and others, these guys write their reports and they get read. And I believe that that led to this massive development in Chinese interest in Israeli not only interest, but the ability to access and, and financially interact with Israel on that level. I mean, I know from, from my own, my own uh, career in tourism that it's around this time that the tourism sector in Israel starts waking up to what at the time was believed to be this, this impending wave of Chinese visitors to Israel. I remember sitting in briefings where they talked about, and this was way at the beginning, uh, you know, when we were seeing a couple thousand a year, they were talking about, you know, the Chinese are going to have 200 million citizens travel outside of the borders of China. Uh, the rising middle class in China, of course, is the largest uh, of its kind in the world. And if we can just get 1% of that, we're talking about, you know, Tens of thousands of people a year will overtake all of the other markets. And, you know, they, they sent us on a roadshow to, to China that I participated in. And it was my first time in China. And it was, you know, it blew my mind, of course. But uh, there was a lot of hope that this would turn into a very, very big, you know, almost, you know a, a reciprocal relationship where many Israelis would be going to China, many Chinese would come to Israel. And we did see that happen. I mean, right before COVID, uh, you know, you had daily flights from Shanghai and from Chengdu on, on China and Airways, and you had Hainan Airways and uh, Cathay Pacific, I think still runs a line uh, even today uh, from Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, that was, of course, if we're talking about where you were with China, you know, pre-2013, that would probably be like a dream, like to think that there was going to be all these daily flights coming here and so forth. But, uh, you know, I always got the impression that, or at least this is what I was told, that there's a certain amount of culturally speaking, almost like a reverse anti-Semitism in China, where they, where we they call it, a, we call it a philo-Semitism. Philo-Semitism is that the academic, it's like a positive yeah. anti-Semitism. Like that they is. believe that we're all geniuses and that they should emanate, uh, and, and, right. How much did you get a sense that that's, um, a pervasive view of Israel and, and of Jews in Israel? Because like you said, it's not a, a Judeo Christian, uh, place. They never had a, real experience except for the Kaifeng community. Um, there's no history as far as I'm aware of anti-Semitism or certainly Christian anti-Semitism in China. So yeah, what's their view of us, you know, and, and how has that changed over the years? So the Chinese are very objective in their assessment. They say, how many Nobel Prizes did Jews have compared to their percentage population? And how many of them are at, uh, get a university education? And how many of them are rich? And how many of them run banks? 
And how many, so success, how does Israel, a, a godforsaken piece of land, constantly under attack, endless battles by, you know, 300 million uh, neighbors who don't want them there, how do they survive? They must have the secret sauce. And they want to understand what that is, and they definitely want a piece of it. And so, yeah, I, it's philo-Semitism. And is that okay? Yeah, I mean, I, where we are, or or set us up for disappointment when we fail to live up to their. They get frustrated sometimes. Mm-hmm. They, ch- but a lot of things they chalk up to being foreigners. Um, they give us a little more credit, a little bigger line of credit than some others. There's a a lot of room for misunderstandings, but. Generally, you know, Israel, the Jews have this cachet, but that's, and that will get us a certain distance. But at the end of the day, they want results. And if they see benefits in Israel for different reasons, then they are going to, you know, invest or be around or whatever it is that, that they're interested in doing. But I think what, what we need to think about is what does Israel want? And our prime minister saw China as a uh, counterbalance to anti-Semitic Europe back in those early teens, you know, 2012, 13, 14, 15, and up until I think very recently, where right, I, can, I can remember, I can, I can remember. Uh, I think it was at the time, it was um, the tourism minister was Uzi Landau, and I remember listening to him make a make a. Uh, a speech about to our community of the tourism professionals about how, or maybe it wasn't Uzi, it was someone in his office about how if the Europeans are anti-Semitic and they're very, very, very focused in an almost obsessive way about what happens here in Israel to point the fingers, the Chinese can't even point at uh, Israel on a map. It's just not that, you know, the average Chinese doesn't know where Israel is. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that was the person. I don't see well, that's here or there. Um, right. the, uh, basically, Prime Minister Netanyahu saw a value in moving a certain percentage of our exports away from Europe and to China. Uh, I heard that and I was very concerned because China is a different animal. It's a very strategic, uh, a strategically oriented leadership. Uh, they have plans. They have a five-year plan, a 25-year plan, a 100-year plan. And uh, Israel was only looking at one component and that was the economics. But China is, is a holistic nation. Its culture is holistic. Look at, go to a Chinese medicine doctor. You say, oh, I have a pain in my shoulder. He says, show me your tongue and let me check your pulse. Huh? My problem is here and my shoulder. But it's all connected. And it's it is all. It's a wonderful example. That's a really wonderful example. And, and the first time I actually went to a practitioner of Chinese medicine, I was floored by by that approach, um, you know, it was, it was, I had a pain in my ankle or in my wrist and he checked my stomach and, you know, put, you know, put the needles in my forehead and the pain was literally gone. Um, but, but that's a wonderful parable for foreign policy. And, and you know, I'm a student of uh, foreign affairs and, and of history. And um, I've always kind of appreciated that Chinese approach, that, that way that they can do that, which is something that certainly we here in Israel don't do. Everything's piecemeal, uh, whether it's defense or diplomacy or economics. Um, I think even even the Americans don't know how to do that, even though, uh, you know, I don't think the Americans have really ever understood how to be a global superpower. And the Chinese do. And you see how they're operating in the Middle East. You see how they're operating in Africa. Uh, you see how they're implementing the Belt Road initiative, uh, which which I'd love to get into. So, so what is their approach to the Middle East and how do we fit into that? So 
It's it's a great question. Back in 2011, one of the reasons, ways I was able to convince these people to come to Israel to an organization that nobody ever heard of was Arab Spring. They had just received a, a, a gut punch of the losing $70 billion in Libya and having to airlift uh, 35,000 Chinese uh, out of out of Libya that they didn't even know were there. And they did not want that to happen again. They realized they didn't understand the Middle East and they needed to learn. And they figured that these, that Israel sitting in the middle of it, dealing with it every day would know more than they, they do and, and could give them some insights. So they, they saw, said at the time, we don't understand the region. We have to be careful. They've been saying the same thing for 10 years. However, in 2016, they became the largest investor in the Middle East, the largest foreign investor in the Middle East. They uh, have about $100 billion of trade going in their direction with the Middle East. Seven, mostly oil? Um, mostly oil, but not all oil. And $7 billion of it is coming from Israel. We, as, uh, we may offer some innovation and some important technology but as, as an economy, obviously, we're not very relevant. But China has penetrated most of the world, as you said. They're also in the Arctic. Uh, they became Arctic observers. They are doing, building cities in Egypt. They were in discussions to do major projects in Iraq with the former government. But now the new government is canceling those deals. Um, Lebanon, they were talking with Lebanon before those explosions recently about building a highway that, that connected Beirut to homes, but uh, that I think that that's now gone silent. They have um, an interest in reconstruction in Syria if there's a way that they can see compensation. They have special forces in Tardis, which are partly there just to scope out opportunities for state-owned enterprises. There's a lot of technology. Uh, there's a lot of arms sales. The arms sales from China into the Middle East have increased by 38% since 2017. So uh, we know that there was the discussion of this Iran 25-year deal, a $400 billion of investment into Iran in return for a low-cost energy. With, right. This is what in uh, July, I believe, uh, Iran and China signed this long-term agreement. No, 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 no. Something else. In July, they leaked. Iran leaked that the thing is in discussion. It's not supposed to be signed until March of next year. It's not a done deal, and there are many issues for the Chinese and for the Iranians. And the reason the Iranians leaked it is because uh, they're concerned about losing sovereignty. Uh, certain certain voices within Iran were worried about losing uh -huh. sovereignty due to the... And they also have a long tradition of, you know, different kind of countries coming in and, and chipping away at their sovereignty uh, over the past couple hundred years. Um, I, I want to ask you two questions in this regard. Um, they're kind of connected. So one is, is kind of the narrative that I always understood about China and the Middle East and Israel was that China was hesitant to get closer to Israel and I think you've added another layer from my understanding in that it didn't really have a need 
Um, but it was hesitant to get Israel because what would the Arabs say, right? There are 50, 20 something Arab states, 50 something Muslim states. So why, why risk it? Why, why bother with this little tiny um, country uh, of Israel? Uh, and, and has something in that changed? Uh, is it a calculus thing saying, okay, um, the Arab world, is, you know, after the Arab Spring has become destabilized, Israel stable, uh, Israel has much to offer, uh, from a tech perspective, um, and it's stable? Or is there also an element of, and we don't really care what the Arabs are saying anymore? And then connected to that with the possible Iran agreement that was leaked by the Iranians, um, how would you characterize kind of China's um, priorities as far as relationships and alliances in the region? Hmm. You guys ask really good questions. So... China's friends with everyone. China has a comprehensive strategic partnership with Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and I think the UAE. They have a, a comprehensive innovation partnership with Israel. China is on good terms with Turkey, even though Turkey causes China all kinds of problems. And uh, basically, you know, China's, China is able to balance Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, Iran, and, and, and so on. Um, they do it all over the world. And they, their approach is to look at the country, assess what it needs and sort of where its weaknesses might be or where its concerns are and try to contribute in a way that uh, give it some leverage or some uh, access depending on what they need. So uh, with respect to Israel, Israel's important to China. I think um, I was told by a, uh, a member of the government diplomatic corps, a high-level uh, diplomat, as opposed to the party, okay. uh, which is also a very you know, powerful and important entity in China, or more powerful and important, that Israel is not economically so important, but it is very important as being part of the Western Bloc. And because we are a military power, or even they said superpower in the region, that you you need Israel uh, to um, to agree basically if you're going to do anything in the region. That's their the assessment I was told. Uh, that would tell you that we're important for China if they're interested in being in the region. And uh, which implies that they're interested in the region. Now, of course, we know energy is critical, but, you know, they get more energy from Saudi Arabia than they do from Iran. And uh, and that 25 year deal, it's, it's kind of absurd when you think of it. Who would enter into a 25 year energy arrangement, even if it's a scaling down price, because who knows if you're even going to need oil in 25 years or 20 years. So the Chinese think ahead, and it's hard for me to imagine that they would enter into that kind of an agreement. They don't want a conflagration. I can tell you they do not want a conflagration in this region. They do not want Iran and Israel going head to head. In fact, I read a uh, uh, report that was put out in, in China that China, in order to be sure that there isn't such a thing, and they don't mind, you know, if they want to be able to sell arms, there should be reasons that people in the region are buying arms. And you can imagine what that implies. 
But at the same time, they said we should use whatever influence we have to tone things down in order to make sure that there is no serious conflict that would uh, lead to a blockage of the movement of energy. And would they ever, if there was such a conflict, would they intervene? They don't intervene militarily. That's they. Um, would they inter? Would they make diplomatic moves? Probably, but they tend to work behind the scenes. I would imagine they would. I think they're working behind the scenes in many many situations where they, you know, want to contribute to greater stability. Can you imagine a scenario? And it hasn't happened yet, um, because I think China's global position um, is is relatively new. But in an era, and maybe we can use this to segue to to kind of the great power competition with the United States, in an era where the United States is clearly pulling back from an active leadership role in global affairs, certainly if uh, with this administration, um, where the United States is, is, is far less reliant on Middle Eastern oil, um, we're seeing a Gulf War you know, in such a, an event where, where the United States or the United States and a coalition of countries comes in militarily to open up the flow of oil again. Um, in, in, a, in a reality where that's less and less um, likely, likely. Um, do you ever see China maybe doing something like that if there was ever to be any kind of crisis uh, blocking right. Middle East oil? Could can, we see China could, behaving like the Russians? Could you see in 10, 20 years China sending uh, an aircraft carrier to the Middle East um, even just to signal that oil must flow or, or, or be taking more than a diplomatic role in things. Can you, can you imagine such a scenario? If that were possible, if that were a feasible scenario, the world would have changed so much we wouldn't really recognize it. And we may be going in that direction, but China just, we, let's put it like this. This is the first time in the history of the world that China has ever been both wealthy and interested in the world. When they were wealthy, they couldn't care less. There was no, you know, they had Zhang He traveling around in a ship five times larger than Columbus's, and you know, he brought home a giraffe. And then about that. Th- there was a uh, some kind of internal issue, and they knocked down his boat, you know, broke it to pieces. Um, no more, no more international travel. No more giraffes. The mentality is very inward oriented. They aren't interested. Um, now the uh, then, of course, you had the whole 150 years where the whole modern period of our history, uh, they were poor. So they weren't able to go out into the world. So now in, in the last, you know, 10 years, I used to say when I first started and I would be talking to Israelis, um, China reached this level of success 20 years before it expected to. And it doesn't have all the skill sets at least this was as of, you know, 2010, 12, 14, doesn't have the skill sets to um, be the great power that it is now uh, able to be, expected to be. And then as Xi Jinping, you know, grew within his position, is positioning to be or is being. That's and an interesting position. Yeah. For example, they have no international experience. They do not know what it is to do foreign diplomacy. They've only really actively been doing foreign diplomacy, you know, in a, in a meaningful way in the last, whatever, 15, 20 years. They have not had business outside of China. Think about the Americans, think about the, the Russians, think about the Israelis. I mean, we've been all over the world all the time. They went into Africa 
and made and lost money and lost money and lost money trying to do business. And and we asked, I was with um, uh, a business uh, colleague in China and introduced him to some of my my uh, geopolitical uh, network. And he asked, why do you keep doing this? Why don't you farm it out to other like uh, other countries who know how to do it? And he, they, he said, it's worth it to us to lose the money to learn how to run things internationally. So China's definitely a quick study. They learn all the time. They, you know, in Israel, the attitude is, I already know. And in China, the attitude is, I don't know. And so they're much more receptive to learning. So, so there's a sense of humility uh, about their role in the world. Well... There's a sense of humility in general. China is becoming, le- uh, is exerting a lot of hubris in the last couple of years uh, to its detriment. There's a lot of blowback these days. You probably heard about uh, uh, the president of the Czech Senate went to Taiwan and Wang Yi called him names. And then the um, the French and the Germans all supported the, the Czech diplomat and um, one of the other Czech diplomats said some very explicit things publicly about Wang Yi. And oh, no. um, you can see that there's less and less tolerance for China's way. They've been getting away with it for a while, but if, if the other countries are going to support each other uh, then, then we'll see a change. It's this hubris. You know, you saw the NBA, right? The National Basketball Association, how they had to apologize to China. I, you know, there's like a list of 50 companies, multinationals that have apologized to China because who, whoever apologizes to America or apologizes to anybody. Nobody. Um, but China somehow, you know, positions itself to, to uh, be apologized to. And, um, and that's its culture. So the way that China would take more a more leadership position in the world would look different. And I don't think you would end up needing a battleship to show up. They'd have, my thinking is they would have other ways of making it happen. But if they had to have a battleship, then, you know, that's what they'll do. And, and that's definitely what they're preparing for. They have the largest Navy in the world now in numbers. So, so this is a nice segue into kind of, maybe the biggest global topic, uh, not of the year, but generally kind of global trends if we're looking at power dynamics. And and that's, you know, China's rise and America's concern over that. And it's played a huge part in American politics, maybe maybe one of the few areas where America is uh, even a little bit bipartisan. Um, can you take us into right now the China-US dynamic before we you know, bring Israel back into the mix of things. Um, where does that stand? What are the sensitivities, um, maybe kind of from an American perspective and from a Chinese perspective? So when China entered the World Trade Organization, it was supposed to develop into what looked more like a Western capitalist system in the minds of the West. And uh, they received special trade status as a result, and they were able to make a, a huge amount of money um, because, through having the access that that provided. However, they didn't change the rules and reform in the way that was expected. So 
um, this ill-level playing field just got more and more extreme. So you have China blocking foreign companies from almost everything in China, but China having access to almost everything outside of China. So um, that was a you know, very big advantage for China. And then you have state-owned enterprises, which are subsidized by the government, which allow China to um, uh, offer extremely competitive prices or uh, for bidding on contracts. So you have right. China winning all these contracts. And um, all of, for all of these sort of infrastructural reasons, you have a framework that is tipped, you know, your thumb on the scale towards China in everything. Now, there's also an argument that is completely valid, which is that America the most and the West in general benefited from uh, China's entrance into WTO because it prevented any kind of recession by keeping prices down, by providing goods that were very, very inexpensive. So nothing's black and white. And, and I think it's very important to know that in Chinese culture, there's no such thing as black and white. Everything is gray. And they're very comfortable living with contradictions. Like we support the Palestinian line, but we want to do business with the Israelis. Every kind of contradiction. You know, China says it does not interfere in any, any other country's domestic interests. But you have all these countries having to apologize to China so is that not interfering? Now you have the law in Hong Kong, which says if you say um, the wrong thing in your home country about Hong Kong or the leadership of China, and then you go to Hong Kong, you can be arrested and taken to China. So that law applies to the world. So what has President Trump um, tried to do and done regarding, regarding China? Kind of what's been the rhetoric and what's been, what's been the policy? Yeah, so he very successfully... Uh, moved the needle on China from a, a, a um, sort of relatively cooperative relationship to competitive uh, moving towards rivalry. And uh, the Chinese would like to stay in the competitive framework. And I think these, the Americans would also like to move it to the competitive framework and keep it there. If they can do it, they can get the, the necessary concessions that they need from China. So the, the ill-level playing field, it's not only economic. If you want to go to China and, well, you know about the internet. It's well known that the internet is, is limited and blocked. You can't access Gmail. You can't use Facebook. And in America, you can access everything, right? You want to go to Baidu, you can. You want to go to, to um, use WeChat, you can. Uh, Etc. In in China, when it, American diplomats want, or maybe any diplomat, I'm not sure, but certainly American diplomats, when they are going to go and speak at a university, they have to go and register. So now, recently, reciprocity, Trump said, "Okay, all Chinese diplomats, you want to go talk to anybody, you have to come register." And and the Chinese were up in arms. But what are you talking about? That's just the situation that it is for the Americans in China. So what Trump is doing is trying to, um, surf, surf, first of all, raise the flags about where there are uh, discrepancies and uh, th that need to be fixed. Another area is scientific research. You know, this is a huge one. Techn techn technology research, um, core research, which is uh, generally open and to, to a certain extent. Um, the government is working now to create protections to limit Chinese access or foreign access. Uh, right, the concerns that, that uh, Chinese students are coming, learning at the best 
American universities in the world and then taking all that knowledge back to China? Is that the concern? Or are you talking more about China? China? Parallel, sorry. Sorry. I, I was just going to add to that. Are you are you referring more to like intellectual property theft or or uh, you know the theft of proprietary technologies that are developed by American institutions going back to China uh, and then being mass produced in, in? So you have IP that is you know from the uh, commercial side, but in the academic end, you're even at the research level, you have Chinese who are studying or working as uh, you know postdocs in America, and they go to China. And they're still doing their postdoc here and they set up a parallel lab here and they take the knowledge here and they bring it back to China and they set up, they use it without necessarily telling the people here that that's happening. And it happened at Duke University and a number of other universities. Um, so Trump is trying to institute all kinds of mechanisms, uh, laws that will protect against that. And of course, there's a, how do you do it? Where do you find the balance? You want to have you know freedom of research and academia. But in China, you know, there's been a uh, over the years that I've been there, it has moved from being relatively open for me, amazingly open compared to when I was there in the eighties to closing in little by little closing in. Uh, we now have Israel studies in 20 universities. However, for the last few years, like since 2016 or 17, there are certain places where it's been impossible to send a professor to go and teach a, give a lecture. They, we just, they told us, you know, you need three months notice, now six months notice, now no wait. And also um, another university said, well, we can accept people who talk about literature and culture, but not about politics or, uh, or history. So um, there's a lot of limitations being put on the schools. And on the one hand, it was Xi Jinping announced that he wanted the schools to become more international. On the other hand, uh, there was like this book burning process. I don't know if you know, but um, there was this uh, uh, foreign ideas were considered to be a problem. And so some teachers took it a little too far and had a little book burning, you know, a la what is it? You know, they did made a fire out of there. Bonfires. Wow. Bonfires. Exactly. So the idea of intellectual freedom in, in China is is challenging. And what Trump has done is basically uh, made the world aware uh, by by bringing it front and center. Huawei is a very important factor because 5G is the next it is the next level of the digital world. It's almost taking us, you know, to a different, the, the digital revolution. Right. It's the next leap. They've leaped over the United States and, you know, um, take, really going a full generation forward here, right? The, it, but the thing with 5G is that it, it will be um, integral. Not, it's not just speed. It's all, it's about uh, running so many businesses that will be based on, you know, um, remote medicine, remote education, auto driving, uh, cyber, everything is going to be sitting on that 5G. And it's a multi-trillion dollar business. And, and you know, there's a competition. China wants the multi-trillion dollar business in its hands and America wants it in its hands. The problem that I think many other countries, you know, third countries are suffering. Israel is suffering. Many countries are suffering because uh, caught in the crossfire in all kinds of ways. South Korea, you know, South China Sea, um, countries in, in all over the place, you're, there are countries that are more or less feeling the pain of this uh, conflict. 
And um, the problem is that if China doesn't necessarily realize that for for the West to have this communication power held by uh, an authoritarian system that does close its um, communication access, that does monitor, uh, you know, the level of tracking done for COVID-19 would be illegal here, what they do in China. Now, they have no cases. They are able to track and monitor and quarantine very effectively. Um, and here, you know, people will just protest and the, the government can't get away with it. So, um, and in America too, you know, there's a sense of being free and having the ability to um, speak your mind and issue of human rights and rights in general and rule of law, which is not the case in China. Uh, so what would it mean for the world, for China to be running 5G? So Trump has led this uh, effort to encourage countries not to use uh, Huawei 5G because uh, I, I think from Trump's perspective, it's very much about the jobs and economics of it. But from my perspective, it's very much about values. Yeah, there's a much deeper uh, issue here, uh, like you pointed out. It's, it's right. Do you want an authoritarian country controlling basically the highway system that's going to run the next you know, century or whatever it is of, of, of how everything is managed. Um, I just have to say for the record that I, I, I'm obviously very pro relations with China and I greatly believe, and that's why I, you know, reached out to China back then, you know, having said all that I said about, you know, the system, China, uh, the authoritarian for system for China, it works for China. I believe that the, the communist party as it is, is the only entity that can actually succeed in holding that country together. And I don't think anyone should interfere with that. And I hope that the U.S. does not want to interfere with that. I think that it doesn't. And they should be able to decide for themselves what kind of system they want, just like we should be able to decide. And they should not interfere with our choices and, you know, that we shouldn't feel compelled to apologize for any choices that we make. Right. Um, but engagement with China is critical. Everybody needs to engage. Blocking China, alarmist perspectives, this does not bring solutions and it doesn't bring benefits. And so I think that, you know, it's very important for each country to find a healthy balance. And to do that, if there's, you know, one message I would want to send out to your listenership, the most important thing is to have an informed understanding of China and how it does things. We haven't really been able to get into that, but, uh, because it isn't Judeo-Christian, it has a totally different history. Uh, we had a scholar in here for one of our conferences who, uh, who said he, he's a European who lived in China for 40 years and married to a Chinese and speaks fluent Chinese and deals in the diplomatic world. He said, he turned to the audience and he said, before we start, I have to tell you, the closest you're going to ever get, China is the closest you're ever going to get to Mars. <laughs> because it's it true. For us, so different. And when I say different, I'm talking about down to the DNA. And they think that we are so different. And we are. It's so funny. It's so funny that you said that. My immediate impression when I when I came back from China, when people asked me how was it, I was like, 
it's like I was on a different planet Earth. It's Earth. There are trees, there are birds, there's animals, there's whatnot, and there are people who look like people. But it is like the bizarre it's not I'm not saying that as a judgment. It's like it's like the bizarro world. It's like it's like Earth 2.0. It's this other thing with a whole other DNA. And it's immediately noticeable when you get there. When you step off the plane and you're there, it's like, oh, okay. And it's like you start to figure it out that you're somewhere that you're completely and totally without any sort of a there's nothing that can prepare no you bearing. for it. There's no cultural bearing, right? But there's no, there's nothing exactly. It's like, yeah. what can you say? Oh, I was in Chinatown in New York. It's similar. No, like it's it's. I, I have it's to, a whole other thing. I have to ask you. Um, you said Trump is trying to make these efforts. Um, are there countries? Where's the world standing on this? You said uh, you know a lot of the countries, and you listed uh, us and, and South Koreans, and and you know are kind of torn between the next technology, but you know we're kind of all been living in this American structured global economy and right. global system. The 20th century was the American so, century. So where are countries going in this direction? Are they kind of staying with the American led system or are they starting to drift over? Um, and I'll use, and you know, I'll segue into the next question here. Is China trying to build a different global system where it's the leader? First of all, in the last five minutes that we have, I will say that China has said in so many words, it wants to reshape the glo global governance to be more suited to China, that it was not part of the planning of the system, that it is a huge contributor and that it is significant on every level. It has the scale of no other country. It is a unicorn. It is the only country on the planet with Three, every man, woman, and child, 300 million or maybe 350 million people, every man, woman, and child in America are educated adult workers in China. Did I say America? Yeah. The, all of America, the entire population, are adult and, and hardworking, educated people. So think about what that means. No single country on the planet compares. India is big, but it isn't organized. Right. China has a top-down system that is relatively effective. A tremendous amount of energy goes into planning. It has the cash reserves to move the, that battleship in the direction that the leader set, thinks is, is best. And it has the human resources to make it happen. So China says, here we are. We uh, think that the system should be more suited to our needs. And it is working on all levels everywhere to make that happen. So uh, China is becoming more powerful and more taking a more leadership role in every international organization. They, uh, when we were in, in China last year, a, one of our colleagues asked our esteemed delegation if they would connect him to experts in international organizations because he was asked by the leadership to create a course for students on how to perform better in international organizations. So um, they're taking that very seriously. They're, uh, they are doing business with and diplomacy with every single country. Um, they are pursuing the Belt and Road project, although they're not as vocal about it, but it is continuing in most of the globe. And we didn't have a chance to talk about this, but this is a massive global multi-year initiative to, to build infrastructure and logistics infrastructure that connects the entire world. This is, uh, maybe we'll have to do a whole other episode awesome. uh, 
on, on the Belt and Road Initiative because it's uh, really a fascinating story. Um, are they trying to change the system so that they're a part of it or are they trying to replace the system? Not replace, reshape. Reshape. Yeah, they're not uh, revisionist. They don't want to wipe out what is and start from scratch in, the, in their own image. They want, they, um, China's very practical. It knows that it benefited from the existing system significantly. And it wants to rework it, reshape it, so that it, it's better suited to its kind of society. And there are many authoritarian regimes around the world that are, would like to model themselves on China. We always like to talk about, you know, the American model is, is liberal democracy paired with a free market economy. And, here, and, and that's the only way to success. And here we're seeing, uh, and, and I'll say this from a very detached you know, international relations perspective, we're seeing a different model where it's not liberal democracy and it's a different kind of economy that, that I'm not enough of an expert to, to describe. Dual but circulation. But it's succeeding. It's succeeding. It's working. Um, and, and I think with the way you explained it, uh, a lot, at least for a lot of our, our American listeners here, um, is an interesting uh, and I think an important perspective to get. that They're not trying to replace America, but they are trying to shape the system uh, so that they're much more part of it. And, and just given the size of their economy and that they're one-seventh of the global population, that just makes complete sense, uh, again, from a very detached uh, perspective here. Um, so how does Israel, and, and maybe we'll kind of wrap up with this uh, question here. Uh, I, know, I know you're uh, limited in time here. Um, how does Israel fit into this? Because Israel has, you know, Israel's only real strategic alliance um, is with the United States. And, and it's one, you know, and some, this is something I lecture about a lot is where does the foundations of the U.S.-Israel relationship is that way before it was ever economic or technological, it was cultural, it was a value-based, it was a Judeo-Christian based. Um, you know, the roots of American Zionism precede the Zionist movement itself by, by hundreds of years. Uh, and then you added the strategic aspect of the Cold War and Israel's role as a military power in the Middle East. And only in recent years, do you add the kind of the academic and the technological and the economic sides here? Um, so, you know, a lot of people say Israel can't replace the United States with China. Um, some yeah. other people say Israel's moment with, you know, you have some kind of people in Israel who say Israel's moment with the U.S. and with Europe is over uh, and let's, you know, shift to China and to India and to the East. Um, how does Israel navigate this relationship, how does it navigate the tensions between the United States and China? Uh, because it seems super clear that it needs the United States, but it needs to have good developing relations with China. How do we do this? So first of all, Israel is not ever going to replace, I mean, not in the, in, in any reality we know. Again, you know, we've seen COVID-19 and what it did. I suppose we could hit a science fiction you know, fantasy world that is extremely different and that where we are allied with China. But um, outside of fantasy, it's not going to happen because China, <laughs> I mean, China sees Iran as the most important strategic alliance it has in the Middle East. So just for that. And let's not talk about the military technology cooperation and development we do with the United States. You think we would would we do that with China when they work with Iran so closely? And then let's talk about the financial support that we get uh, in order to do that. And and let me ask you: Have you paid attention to the voting of China in the United Nations? 
They have an amazing record, 100% anti-Israel. They have voted against us every single time, including when UNESCO said that the Western Wall had nothing to do with the Jews mm-hmm. or Israel. So, um, and, and when I spoke to Chinese scholars about it, they were very embarrassed because that's obviously not true. So the, it, it, in no reality is, do, do we even consider the possibility of changing anything. For those listeners who say that, it's just a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's absurd. It's really absurd. Uh, And honestly, you know, uh, people say you have to, some people say, oh, Israel, you need to choose a side. We have always had a side. We know there's no choice. It's been, was made a long, long time ago. That's the side we're on. And more importantly, the Chinese are extremely aware of it. You know, they said we have to tippy toe around the Chinese because uh, we don't want to offend them about the fact that we're on the American side. What? They know. They're very smart. And it's also really obvious. We're on the American side. So what Israel really needs to do is uh, having a relationship with China is critical. And the um, one possibility is that because Israel does not have a China policy, which is uh, not for any lack of me trying, and we've been talking to the Israeli government for since 2016, about the need for a policy, a comprehensive, coordinated policy. Everyone says, ha, ha, ha. It's not exactly how Israel works. And I say, that's fine. You don't have to work that way with anyone else. We don't even have that with America. You don't need it with America. You need it with China because China's a different animal. It has a different way of doing things. You need a policy. It will be very good if you can say to China, here's our red lines. This is what we can do. This is what we want to do. They will appreciate that. And you tell that to the Americans and then the Americans uh, uh, understanding that we take their strategic concerns into consideration, they will not block us, you know, because they have a lot of leverage with Israel. So they could conceivably say, we don't want you doing, you know, just like they did with the Falcon, right? They could do that on a comprehensive basis. And, it, and then in the end, we'd be having, we, our, our uh, relations with China would be dance and music because everything else could be dual use because what we're doing, nano re- joint research between Tel Aviv University and Tsinghua. You know, nano is one of those uh, made in China 2025. China has a policy where all the cutting edge technologies will be made in China by 2025. And the policy is called made in China 2025. And when they came, that, it was when they came out with that policy and they said it very blatantly, it was not a secret. That's when Trump started to, well, it was the trade, but that also caught their attention. And that's how 5G became uh, so significant. So Israel really needs to, as I said earlier, have an informed understanding of China, build an approach that is sensitive to what uh, China's culture and the nature of China that will be effective with China because it has its ways of being difficult, just like America can be difficult. We need to use We need to address Chinese ways, not take our Western, all the tools we've been using with Europe and and America and just switch and do that, which is tends to be done here in Israel. Do that with China. I I had, we had a a, a conversation with a Japanese expert and I said that this is what a lot of Israelis do. They take their, you know, U.S. approach and they just turn left and do it over there. He laughed. He said, don't they know that doesn't work? And of course, you know, I, I, my reaction was somewhat frustrated. So it, 
know your audience, know your market, right? When you're dealing with China, study China, know something about it. You know that there's like a two, two modern China uh, faculty in all the country. It, it, it's, it's even though um, China has been the most popular a humanities course in all of Israel for the only grow the only one that's growing over the past ten years. Still, we don't have the academic expertise. You cannot get a PhD in modern China in this country. There's nobody who can do it for you. There was Yitzhak Shichor. He retired. Now there's no one. So uh, get, get an education. Seems like the next project. I, I would close, though, just by saying that I am fascinated by China. I know that Dan is fascinated by China. You clearly are fascinated by China. And I and I would definitely encourage everybody to take a greater interest in, in what is, in my mind, an amazing country. Yes, sometimes a controversial place, but overall, a very, very large presence in the world, not just today, but with thousands and thousands of years of very, very proud history uh, and, and, an, and an amazing culture. And we should all be more open to merit a better understanding of how they uh, see the world and how they fit into the modern world that we all live in, in the contemporary economy and in in contemporary culture, uh, because um, you can't ignore uh, a billion point three, was it a billion three? Four. A billion four people. uh, And, 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 and you shouldn't, it's a fascinating place. I'll give you the final word. Why don't you tell us, uh, where people can find you, uh, what signals got going on these days, and uh, and and how can people be involved? Okay, um, I, I want to say that it's in everyone's interest at this point because China is in the world; its footprint is huge and growing. That will only continue, and um, so it's in the interest of Israelis and and whoever is your audience. But you know, from my perspective, it's very much about Israel it, to learn about China, develop a strategic understanding of China, knowing the culture is is important, understanding how they see things, and then um, being able to understand what's happening from a, an informed perspective. So, and this is very important in the business world, when you're accepting it, when you're looking at investments from China, it, China has uh, very different ways of managing itself. And you want to understand that so that you can end, establish a fair deal uh, as an, on the national level, on the commercial level. It's really critical to get outside of your own head and your, and your limited mental framework and try to um, uh, look at the, what the other person is doing and see what you need to incorporate and what they, you know, they need to know about you, et cetera, so that you can have you know, that wonderful Chinese formula of win-win where we win as well. Um, Signal is, um, I could speak for half an hour just on what what we are doing, um, but one of the things that we're doing a great deal of is convening, it's mainly closed door sessions of international experts uh, on on China, how different countries are dealing with uh, the US-China tensions and um, China's unique form of uh, foreign affairs, uh, share best practices and gain more understandings. We also ha- convene with our Chinese colleagues because we can't travel. Uh, so we uh, still hold briefings for them on the Middle East, which is something that we would do on a regular basis in China. And now we're we're forced to do it on Zoom, which is better than nothing for sure. 
we do a lot of publishing in both articles and research papers. We wrote a very uh, comprehensive paper uh, for China's the, the China-Israel free trade agreement negotiation on the history of, of China's free trade agreements, which if you write to us and you're interested in seeing that 90-page report or one page of takeaways, you can get that from us by writing to us. Uh, our website is sino-israel.org. It couldn't be signal because there's too many signals in the world. And we'll put that on the website with the show notes. Great. We're, we're also doing, um, uh, we're continuing our Israel studies in China. Uh, we have Chinese teachers who teach, but we're also doing online enrichment with professors from Israel. And as China becomes more and more central in Israel, we have gotten busier and busier. So lots going on. And uh, we have a, um, a, di- a few different publications that if people are interested in receiving them to learn more about China, that's very much something that we provide and we uh, always welcome everyone. Excellent. So I encourage everybody to check it out. Karis uh, Witte, thank you very much for your excellent explanations and explanations insights. And, and introspect and all of this. We appreciate it very much. You certainly enriched our worldview here. And uh, we wish you and your organization a lot of success. Uh, your success, I think, is our success. And to similar organizations around the world who are trying to uh, create greater understanding of uh, one of the world's great powers and its role in the world. Um, so thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Featherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.